No, your radio is not broken. You are just listening to the sounds of a mysterious object in the universe, an object known as PSR 0329 plus 54. This month on Mountain Radio Astronomy, we're going to learn about these objects known as pulsars. We'll be talking with pulsar hunter Scott Ransom, an astronomer at the National Radio Astronomy Observatory in Charlottesville. So, Scott, uh, before we get started on our discussion of pulsars, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself? Okay, well, as uh, Sue Ann said, my name is Scott, and I, uh, I've been working for NRAO now for the last year and a couple months. Uh, before that, I was a, a postdoctoral re researcher at McGill University in Montreal. Uh, but I'm from the States uh, originally, not a Canadian. And I've had a pretty strange uh, career path so, uh, so far as, as an astronomer goes. Uh, I was in the Army for about five and a half years, which is something that most astronomers don't do. Uh, but then uh, I missed science so much, I, I ended up uh, going back to graduate school, and, uh, and now I am absolutely loving what I'm doing. So. Very good, very good. And where are you from originally? Originally I'm from Ohio. Okay, not too far away, one of our bordering states. Well, Scott, you've spent a lot of time at the Green Bank Telescope doing research on pulsars, and I thought maybe first, before we talk about some of the uh, exciting things that you've discovered, that you'd tell us a little bit about what pulsars are and how they're made. Okay. So a pulsar is a neutron star that's behaving strangely. And uh, what I mean by that is that we see pulses of radio emission and sometimes x-ray emission and optical emission and sometimes even the highest energy uh, electromagnetic radiation which is known as gamma rays uh, from these objects. And the strange thing about it is that it's pulsed. So we see bursts of, of light uh, coming to us or in, in our case here at, at Green Bank, uh, bursts of radio waves um, that occur usually for most, most pulsars about once a second. Um, but some pulsars, some very strange pulsars, which uh, is what one of my research specialties are, known as millisecond pulsars, these pulses can, co can come hundreds of times per second. The fastest pulsars known right now uh, are about 600 times per second, um, and which is faster than a kitchen blender spins, it's faster than a race car engine rotates. I mean, these are, this is pretty incredible how fast these stars are rotating, because that's actually where the pulsations are coming from. They're coming from the rotation of the star. And so what we have here is a, a pulsars are neutron stars, and what a neutron star is, when a massive star, uh, something between 8 and 20 times the mass of our sun, for instance, um, at the end of its lifetime, it burns its fuel very, very rapidly, uh, the, the fires of fusion in its core. Um, and once that fuel is extinguished, there's no more energy to support the center of the star. And so the star, or I should say the core of the star, collapses. And when it collapses, all that dense matter in the, in the center of the star, which is about the size of significantly bigger than the Earth at that time, that's the, the very core of the star, even though the star itself is much bigger than our sun, the core of that star collapses um, to something that's about the size of a city. So it goes from the size of the Earth to the size of a city in about a second. And when that happens, it causes this tremendous shock wave which breaks apart the star. And matter of fact, it rips apart the star into, in a massive explosion known as a supernova. And so this is how the neutron stars are formed. So a neutron star is a, an extremely dense object that's the size of a city. Its radius is about uh, between 10 and 20 kilometers, or let's say 6 to 8 or 9 miles. 
but it's got extreme, extreme densities. And uh, the, the densities are such that it has more mass, more material than every single thing that's in our whole solar system, the sun and all the planets together, collapsed into something that's the size of a, of a city. And so when you have something that dense, it's extremely stable up there in space. It, it is the densest form of matter that we know of. It's denser than atomic nuclei, and it's, except for black holes, it's the closest thing we have to, uh, that we know of to a, to a black hole. Now you said um, just a, a minute ago that uh, you're seeing pulses of light or radio waves in the case of the Green Bank Telescope because this object is rotating. That's right. So how does that happen? How does this object rotate? Right. So during this collapse process, and this is this is a rough idea of how this works, and people are actually still arguing over exactly how the rotation of these of these pulsars, uh, I mean, how you get so much rotation. But kind of the basic idea is that before the star explodes, it has some rotation, just like our sun, just like the Earth does. And they may be rotating once every few days, maybe rotating maybe once every month or something. But that star is very large. And when that star collapses to become this neutron star, it shrinks, it gets much, much smaller. So just like a figure skater, when a figure skater is spinning and she has her arms spread wide, wide apart, she's big in that case. But when she brings her arms in, uh, she becomes much smaller. And that rotation, that angular momentum, we call it, is conserved. And so that, that causes her to spin much, much faster. Same thing happens in the case of a star. As the collapsing star, or as the massive star collapses into a neutron star, all that rotation, that slow rotation, becomes very, very rapid. And so now we have a rapidly rotating neutron star. The other thing that happens during that collapse is that there's also a small amount of magnetic field in the star. Uh, and during that collapse, all these magnetic field lines you can think of them as, which is where the magnetic field is going, um, that magnetic field, those magnetic field lines become compressed together as well. So the magnetic field effectively grows. So this pulsar is now rotating rapidly and it has a very strong magnetic field. Give us a comparison about magnetic fields. I know that you measure them in a unit called Gauss, but I right. don't really have a sense of what that means. Right, so the, uh, the Earth's magnetic field is, let's say, round numbers around a Gauss. These pulsars, ma their magnetic field strengths are billions to trillions of times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field. And so they are the strongest magnetic fields that we know of uh, in the universe. Actually, there, there's a form of neutron star called a magnetar that has even slightly stronger magnetic fields, but those are effectively very similar to pulsars in, in general anyways. So these extremely strong magnetic fields cause particles to bounce back and forth in, their, in, in the magnetic fields them, themselves. And so this is very much like on the Earth, how we have the Earth's magnetic field, and we have particles from the sun that get trapped, and they bounce back and forth, and they create the aurora. And so it, in a similar type way, these particles that are bouncing back and forth in these extremely strong magnetic fields, that's what causes this, this radiation that we see in the form of radio waves, and sometimes for the most energetic pulsars as optical x-rays or even gamma rays. In terms of, of what you see out there, do most pulsars radiate in a particular part of the electromagnetic spectrum? You said in some cases you'll see optical light, and in extreme cases you'll see x-rays. So um, if you were to sort of break them up into groups, how many pulsars emit in these different wavelength right. ranges? So right now we know of something like 1,800 pulsars, give or take 100 because the rate of discovery has been pretty rapid in the last 10 years, it's often very tough to pin down exactly how many we have at any one time now. But let's say roughly 1,800 pulsars. Out of those, almost all of them emit in the radio. 
And so that's where they've been detected, and that's where we study them. There's only one pulsar that we know of. Actually, that's not quite true. Maybe a couple others that are very, very weak, but one pulsar that's actually pulses very brightly in the optical part of the spectrum, and that's called the Crab Pulsar. It's a very famous pulsar. It was in a supernova that, that exploded in 1054 AD, and the ancient astronomers uh, actually saw that, uh, the explosion, and they recorded it in history, so we know exactly when it happened. We see the, the remnant of the explosion in the sky. Um, and then there's probably about maybe 10 pulsars or so that emit in the, that pulse in the x-rays, one of which is the crab also. It pulses very brightly in x-rays. And then maybe a half dozen or possibly more, we've definitely identified six or seven that pulse in gamma rays, although with a new instrument that's going to fly in a couple years called GLAST, a new satellite, it's going to study ga the gamma ray sky, it's likely that we'll find probably another several dozen pulsars that pulse in the gamma rays. And once again, one of the brightest of those is the crab pulsar also. So that crab pulsar is pretty special. It is. It's a very special pulsar. It was one of the earliest pulsars identified, and it's what gave us pretty much irrefutable evidence that pulsars come from these supernova remnants because we see the supernova remnant, we see this, this star-like thing right in the very center of the supernova remnant, we see the pulsations coming in gamma rays, x-rays, optical, and in the radio, and because of the way we can measure the spin of the star, we can show that all of this energy that's being still pumped into the supernova remnant is coming from that rotation of the star. We can actually measure that. So that's what makes the gas around it glow? That's exactly right. So this pulsar, the, the crab pulsar, and pulsars in general, as they rotate, there's particles in electric fields and magnetic fields all moving around and all sorts of very high, highly energetic uh, and very deadly to us if we were to get close to, close to them. All sorts of stuff going on around these objects. But that causes what, uh, what we call a pulsar wind. And that wind is made of, of energetic particles and radiation. And that wind interacts with the supernova remnant itself, which was ejected as the supernova happened, and also from the, the, the small amount of gas and stuff that's in our galaxy all the time, which we call the interstellar medium. And so that pulsar wind interacts with it and causes it to glow, and we see emission. Um, and that's, a, that's actually what we're seeing mostly from the, from, from the crab supernova remnant right now. So just for those that go out and look at the night sky, this crab supernova remnant is called the crab because <laughs> is it is well, it in the? Uh... I, think, I think it's because uh, when Charles Messier first uh, observed the sky and started to, to identify the famous Messier objects, uh, this is known as uh, M1. It's, it was the first of the objects that he identified, and it was pretty much just a fuzzy blob in his, his little telescope. And I think at the time, somehow he managed to convince himself it looked like a crab. Although with modern telescopes, it looks absolutely nothing like a crab. <laughs> okay. So. Okay, but you can find it on star maps, and yeah, uh, if you have yeah. a small telescope, I think you can see it. It's probably not really impressive. That's right. It's not very impressive in a small telescope, right. but there's some fantastic, uh, beautiful pictures available on the, on the web from large telescopes. Excellent. Now, where do you find pulsars? Ah, so since pulsars come from massive stars, in general we find pulsars where massive stars live or where they did live. And so that means the galactic plane, the plane of the Milky Way galaxy. So the Milky Way galaxy is like a big spiral that's flat like a pancake and is rotating over the course of hundreds of millions of years. And in that disk of the galaxy, that's where stars are formed. And so in certain places where there's a lot of gas where stars can form, we have massive stars forming. And so in those places, that's where uh, pulsars are produced and we see them tens or hundreds of millions of years later after the stars were born and then after they've died. 
Um, so most pulsars we find in the plane of the galaxy. Now that, those are what we call the young pulsars or the normal pulsars. And out of those 1,800 pulsars that I mentioned, that's probably about 1,600. So the vast majority are these normal uh, style. But then there's a whole other class of pulsars that I work on, uh, and I mentioned them already, the millisecond pulsars. And those are also found all over our galaxy, but those have, are much older objects. And those have drifted out of our galaxy, because these things can be hundreds of millions or billions of years old. And so they've, they've moved out of our galaxy and have drifted away. We can also find those in these special clusters of stars known as globular clusters. Tell us about globular clusters, because I'm going to ask you about Terzan 5 right. before the interview's over. Right. So this is one of my, one of my very specific and special interests in the research that I do. Um, and that is these, these things called, called globular clusters are very dense clusters of stars that are very old. And so the, the Milky Way galaxy is about 10 billion years old. And the universe itself is between 12 and 13 billion years old. So what we're talking, it's, it's pretty close to the age of the universe. Well, these stars, these, these globular cluster stars, were formed right as the Milky Way itself was forming. So they are about 10 or 11 billion years old themselves. Um, some of them may even be slightly, slightly older than that. They may have even formed before the galaxy itself formed. But the amazing thing is that these have these clusters of stars are in a very, very small region in space. They're kind of spherically shaped, and they have, if you were to put these globular clusters in a box, the size of that box would be only something like 10 or 15 light years on a side. And to give you an idea, the nearest star to us in the sky is four light years away. And so if we put a box around the sun that was 10 or 15 light years on a side, we'd only get a couple, maybe a dozen, I'm not sure the exact number, but a small number of stars because there's not very many stars around us. But if we put a box around globular clusters, we get hundreds of thousands of stars. So the density of stars is much, much higher than the area of the Milky Way where we live. And these are all these very old stars that are very similar to the sun or, or even less massive than, than our sun. But the, the thing was, though, when these clusters formed billions of years ago, there were also massive stars in them. So there were many massive stars. And those stars went supernova, and they created neutron stars. And because of the strange effects that go on uh, in the dynamics of these globular clusters, these neutron stars sink to the center of these clusters of stars. And over the course of billions of years, these stars can interact with one another. You can have stars hitting one another in collisions. You can have stars that that uh, capture another star and they'll go into orbit around them. And when you get these, these stars that pick up a binary companion, a companion star, which we call the system of binary then, after uh, a long amount of time, special things can happen. And uh, there's a process which can turn these systems then that have a neutron star, an old neutron star, and a, and a regular star into a millisecond pulsar. So it turns out that globular clusters are, end up being factories for millisecond pulsars. Now, <clears throat> it's kind of an interesting story to tell about how you get a pulsar that spins that fast. Right. Several hundred times a second, you right. said. That's just remarkable. That's right. And Especially given that they, they are as massive as the sun. Yes. So how do you get a situation where you've got a pulsar that can spin that fast? Right. So that, is, that was a, a, a tricky question. And when the first millisecond pulsar was discovered in 1982, it was found to be spinning more than 600 times per second. And all the other pulsars that we know of spun, like I said, about once per second. Some of them could spin up to a couple, maybe 10 or 20, or the fastest one, the crab pulsar, known at the time, 
spun about 30 times per second. But how you could get something that would spin 20 times faster than that was a mystery right at the beginning. But then people realized that if you have a companion star, and I mentioned this for these binary systems, the companion star, just like the sun, it, it ev will evolve over time. And so that means that there's fusion going on in the center of the star, and eventually that star reaches its, its old age process and turns into what we know as a red giant. And as it expands to become a red giant, the outer parts of that star transfer over onto the, the neutron star. Gas leaves the red giant and forms a disk around the neutron star. And that disk transfers uh, material and angular momentum, in other words, spin, onto the neutron star and causes that neutron star to spin faster and faster and faster. And so it can take a star that was rotating you know, once every 20 seconds or something, and over the course of a few million years, this transfer of matter continuously can cause the thing to spin hundreds of times per second. In the field, we call this recycling. We call it the recycling of a pulsar, because originally that neutron star was a pulsar, and it died out after 10 or 100 million years. But yet, several billion years later, because of this transferring of material, it now becomes an active pulsar again as it spins very, very rapidly. So spinning is what keeps the pulsar sending out exactly. radio waves? Yes. It's the moving magnetic field as it, as it rotates that causes these particles to bounce back and forth very rapidly. And so that's what causes the pulsars to be able to emit radiation. All right. Well, tell us a little bit about your work searching these globular clusters for these fast, fast pulsars. Okay. So this is something that the Green Bank Telescope has done fantastic with uh, over the last two years. Um, as a matter of fact, it's kind of uh, reinvigorated the, the field. So in general, these globular clusters are relatively distant. They're about 20,000 light years away on average, so which is about the, the distance to the center of the Milky Way. And so because these globular clusters are far, um, we're looking across a good chunk of the galaxy to see them. That means the signals we see are very weak. And so in order to find these already weak radio sources, because even the closest millisecond pulsars to us are quite weak radio signals, um, we need to use the largest radio telescopes. We need to observe them for a long amount of time. And we need to suck up as much radio, uh, as much of the radio spectrum as we can, which we call bandwidth. So we need a large amount of bandwidth as well. And the Green Bank Telescope can give us all three of those things, uh, long observations, a large amount of bandwidth, um, and a very large uh, telescope. And so using the Green Bank Telescope, we've been looking at uh, many of the globular clusters um, that you can see from the Northern Hemisphere and have been extremely successful over the last two years. We've found over 50 on almost 60 now new pulsars, in, uh, these new millisecond pulsars in globular clusters. And the numbers are continuing to increase. We found one more yesterday, found eight last week. And so these numbers just continue to go up. Um, there's only about 120 some of these things known total. So the fact that we found 50 with the, the Green Bank Telescope in the last year and a half uh, is pretty impressive. And it's purely because of the fact that you know, we're in this fantastic radio quiet zone and the Green Bank Telescope is, is just a really great and perfect instrument for this. Now, besides the fact that these rapidly spinning, very massive objects are interesting in and of themselves, and they are, they have uses, too. I mean, you can use these objects. Right. Do you want to tell us about that? That's pretty cool. Sure. And so, actually, that's the main reason why I've been going after these, uh, these objects, uh, my collaborators and I. Because uh, it's fine that we find this millisecond pulsar, but so what? It's, you know, 20,000 light years away. Well, the amazing thing is, is because these things are rotating extremely dense objects, and they're rotating in the middle of space, there's very little that slows them down. And they also, because they're so massive, 
they're, they're extremely stable. So they rotate perfectly um, at this hundreds of times per second. And so because of that, they're nature's version of, a t of an atomic clock. They're, they're perfect clocks that nature has given us out there in the middle of space. So if we think of these pulses that we receive here at the telescopes um, as a tick in a clock, we can measure these ticks of, of, of the clocks to a very, very high precision. And some of the most precise pulsars, the, the strongest ones, and, and they have the, the best pulse shapes, for instance, we can measure these, the, the pulse arrivals, uh, when, when the pulses arrive here at Earth, to much better than a microsecond. So very, very high accuracy. That's and a millionth of a, a second. A millionth of a second, that's right. But the neat thing is, is that when we time these pulsars, that's what we call this procedure, where we, we, where we monitor these pulsars on, a, say, a weekly or monthly basis for a long period of time, we can unambiguously account for every single rotation of that pulsar. And so I can tell you exactly, down to the individual rotation, that over the last year and a half, pulsar X has spun, you know, exactly 100 billion, you know, 600 million, you know, et cetera, down to the single individual rotation. And what that does for us is that since we can actually measure each of these individual pulses, we can actually make measurements of the orbits that they're in with other stars. We can me make measurements of the gravity of the globular cluster. We, we can measure a lot of these different pulsars together around the whole sky to see if th there's gravitational waves. There's a whole bunch of different kinds of basic science that we can do using these pulses. Uh, and probably the most famous thing that's been done with these kind of pulsars is to test the theories of gravitation, such as Einstein's theory of relativity. And Russell Hulse and Joe Taylor won the Nobel Prize uh, about a decade ago for precisely this, uh, using pulsars. So you can do really basic physics tests using pulsars as your, as your instrument. Let's just talk about that for a little bit. We'll go into deep water here a little. So, so Einstein's theory, as suggested by this pulsar work, is that the fabric of space-time will be modified by change, a rapid change in gravity or something like this? That's right. So the, the way the, the Einstein's theory of, of general relativity works is that masses deform space. Mass and space uh, and energy are all completely intertwined with, with one another. And as if you change an energy or mass, you change space-time. If you change space-time, it affects the masses. And so that's exactly what's going on with these pulsars. You have these two extremely dense objects, a pulsar and its companion star. Um, and in the case of the, the, the Hulse-Taylor pulsar system, that's another neutron star. And they orbit each other about every uh, eight or nine hours. So this very, very small orbit. These two, ne two neutron stars are orbiting each other within something that's the size of the sun. And these extremely dense, nearly black hole-like objects cause massive deformities in, in space-time. And by measuring the way these clock ticks from the pulsars escape out of this deformed space-time, we, we can directly measure how space-time is deformed. And it turns out it's just exactly like Einstein predicted. That's pretty remarkable. They're building instruments on the Earth to try to measure the gravitational waves, but pulsars indirectly at least infer the existence of these waves right now. That's right. Yeah, using this, the, the Hulse-Taylor uh, binary, what they showed was that the orbit of these, of the, the two new neutron stars was changing over time. So energy was being lost and this energy came from the emission of this gravitational radiation. So even though they didn't directly see the gravitational waves, it was exactly as predicted. But all of this comes from the fact that these pulsars are incredibly precise clocks, and we can use them to make these amazingly accurate measurements.
I want to give you one little uh, tidbit of information about this one pulse rod that I've been studying because it's just amazing to me about how precise we can make these measurements. One of the pulsars that we found in the globular cluster Terzan 5, which has been the big bonanza for us over the last year and a half, that cluster has 31 pulsars in it itself, which is the most of any other globular cluster. But one of those pulsars, Terzan 5N, spins a couple hundred times per second, and it has a relatively massive companion, but it's in a very almost perfectly circular orbit. Now this orbit is about the size, let's say roughly the size of the sun, but because this, the orbit is so perfectly circular and because we can make, measure so precisely when these pulses arrive at Earth, we can tell you the orbit is not exactly circular and that it's slightly elliptical, like Johannes Kepler said that all orbits have to be uh, elliptical orbits. But the difference between the long axis of the orbit and the short axis uh, of the orbit of, these, of this ellipse, we can make that measurement and it's 48 centimeters plus or minus 6 centimeters. And yet we're making this measurement 20,000 light years away. And that's purely because of the precision that you can make in these measurements with pulsars. That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> that's amazing. really amazing. And it's because the millisecond pulsars are the ones that you use for measurements that's like right. this. That's because right. you can accurately measure several hundred pulses within a second that's right. of time. That's right. We can get very, very accurate measurements because they're spinning so rapidly and because they're so stable over long periods of time. Well, I... That just blows my mind. It really does. <laughs> Me too, and I study this stuff every day. So, so uh, in the last couple of minutes, tell us how much work you have to do to get from using the Green Bank Telescope to look at Terzan 5, this globular cluster, let's say, to teasing out 30, 40 right. pulsars. So it's a, it, it's a very big task, and the main reason is that in order to get this high sensitivity, to these very fast pulsars and to get around the obstacles which I haven't even talked about, which is the interstellar medium itself, because all this gas that's between us and the pulsars makes it difficult for us to see the pulsars, and so we have to do some special gymnastics to get around that. Because of this, we have to take an enormously large amount of data every time we observe a globular cluster. So a single night's observation on Terzan 5, for instance, is about 600 to 700 gigabytes of data. So it's just a logistical nightmare just figuring out how to get that data back uh, home with me to Charlottesville to analyze it. So we have this very large amount of data, and then we have to search it for these extremely weak signals because these signals are just barely stronger than the noise that we're measuring, which is all radio astronomy is in general, is teasing out a very small amount of signal from a whole lot of noise. So to do that, we have to use supercomputers. And so to give you an idea, to process one night's data on Terzan 5 or any other globular cluster that's like it, it would take us, using a single person's normal desktop computer, it would take uh, about three years on a single machine to process one seven-hour observation. So we have to use these very large supercomputers and we process the data over the course of a week or two using many, many, many processors. And then we have to sit down and sift through all of the candidates that it finds and then once we have a nice candidate, then we have to go back and reobserve to confirm the candidate. So logistically, just moving around all that data is a nightmare. And then getting it on and off supercomputers and processing it uh, is a tremendous amount of computational effort. Uh, and then there's a, the final step of, of sifting through all these things by hand and then reobserving. So it's a, it's a lot of work, but so far it's paying off quite well. I'll say. I'll say it is. Well, I do appreciate you taking some time with us. We are just about out of time here. I'll just tell the listeners out there that Scott also likes to climb rocks. <laughs> and when he visits uh, Pocahontas County, I can 
generally find him scaling a rock or something like a rock. It might not be a rock. It might be the side of our building, but we'll see him doing that when he's taking a break. But thanks for being with us. Certainly. I appreciate My it. My pleasure. Okay. <laughs> I'd work that in there. That, that makes you well, just... The, the cafeteria ladies call me Spider-Man now. Well, that does it for us here on Mountain Radio Astronomy this month. As we leave you, I'd like to remind everybody to come visit the Science Center, where you can learn more about these fascinating objects called pulsars and many other objects as well. And as we leave you today, I'm going to play for you the sounds of my favorite pulsar, known as 0833-45, the Vela Pulsar. Thanks for joining us. I'm Sue Ann Heatherly. Tune in next month for Mountain Radio Astronomy.